Let's take our Bibles this morning, continue our study in the early church in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 3 this morning. This passage takes place probably uh, just a few days or at most a few weeks after Pentecost. And the city is still buzzing about Jesus and about the apostles. And the church is adding converts daily, which is not hyperbole by the Spirit. It's the reality of what was going on every single day. People were getting saved. That's how it should be with church. Every single day people were getting saved. Every single day people were being added to the church. And the movement of people that, is tr- that are trusting Christ is taking place and it's gaining strength. And it's starting to move throughout the area, throughout Jerusalem and Judea, and maybe creeping up into Samaria as people go back to their homes after Pentecost and into the uttermost parts of the earth. We see Acts 1.8 starting to be fulfilled. And now it's 3 o'clock one afternoon as we look at Acts chapter 3 and the crowds are streaming toward the temple for the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was established in Exodus chapter 29. God said, you'll make a sacrifice to me in the morning and a sacrifice to me in the evening and it will be to honor me. And it will be a reminder to you that I met you at the tent of meeting. I came down, my presence was with you and, and I met you and was among you And you need to remember that and honor me with your sacrifice. And it was a significant sacrifice. It had very specific actions to it. This was not just, well, we'll just throw a bull on the altar and and go at it. There were a lot of different steps that they had to take to, to accomplish the sacrifice. But the bottom line was that the people were supposed to remember the Lord and consecrate themselves. So as the sacrifice was being offered, the people would come together And they would pray. We're going to see that in verse 1 in just a second. So get the scene now. Really have to visualize this morning what's going on. Don't let the text just be words on a page. Really get in your heart and your mind, in your uh, mind's eye, what's happening here, what this looks like. People are coming from all over for the evening sacrifice. And there's an attitude of prayer. And there's an attitude really of of expectation. Let's read what happens, chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John were going up to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking them to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, the crowds are coming for the sacrifice. And Peter and John are coming for the sacrifice. We're not sure why they're there, uh, other than that they were faithful Jews. And they're still honoring the law, even though they've seen Christ fulfill the law. But, But they still are are honoring what God has established. And that's a very important principle, especially when we get to 
the concept of salvation and freedom in Christ. Romans 6 to 8 talks all about that. That because of Christ, the bondage that we are under to sin, we're freed from that. And we're freed to live in the new life that's been given to us. And some people use that as license. Some people use that as legalism. But what God is telling us here, even in this simple thought from verse 1, is that freedom doesn't negate responsibility. When we are freed to live for Christ, when we are freed from the bondage of sin, and we have that new life, even though we've been delivered, and even though sin doesn't have any more control over us, we still have a great need and a great obligation to walk by the word of God. And God gives us the word to teach us, and His Spirit uses, us, uses it to convict us when we're drifting back toward ourselves and we're being a hindrance to the spiritual maturation of other people. So Peter and John aren't thumbing their nose at the law. They're right there with the people, supporting the law, supporting the fact that God has established standards for living and, and ways to, to walk each day. So Peter and John, we see, are coming along with the crowds. And as they arrive, there's this lame man. And the lame man has come too. But he hasn't come to go into the temple and to, and to pray and to worship, he's come to beg for help. He has a sincere and serious problem, and he has friends that bring him day after day to the temple, and, and he sits at the entrance of the temple, and he begs people for help and asks for money and, and says, please, please assist me in some way. So we've got the crowds, we've got Peter and John, and we've got this lame beggar. And all three of those groups come together at the same time, and that's not a coincidence. This is the convergence of God bringing people together so that he might be magnified and lives would be changed. Hear that this morning, that God brings people together at certain times so that he would be praised and he would be honored and he would be known. And so that because of that, lives would be changed. Now this morning, what we're doing right here is one of those times. We're gathering together, not just because we like each other and we want to see each other. We're gathered here to magnify the name of the Lord. We're gathered here to praise God, to study His Word, to call on His name, to give to Him. We're gathered for all those reasons. And, and the purpose of that is that our lives would be changed. I don't know if you came expecting that this morning, but every time we walk into church... Every time we walk into a Bible study or a prayer meeting, we should expect our lives to change in some way. And I think the reason the American church has become so, so flaccid is that we're not expectant. We don't anticipate God moving in our lives. And church then becomes ritualistic. There's an air of expectation. Tonight is a time when God is going to converge on that building down the Lake Avenue. I meant it very seriously when I said the Lord plans to be there tonight. I'm not a prophet. I'm just telling you that he plans to be there. And he wants to bring people together so he can impact hearts and minds in a profound way. For those of us that know him and love him, he wants to encourage us. He wants to stir us in a fresh way. He wants to remind us that he is faithful and he is victorious. And the enemy who has been working very hard for the last two weeks to discourage and dissuade us, is already beaten. So we need to come with our hearts open and expect it that God is going to move and challenge us tonight. And there are going to be people tonight that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they are going to come and they're not going to know why, but God's going to bring them there and their hearts are going to be awakened. We need to pray for that. That God would awaken hearts tonight. What a tremendous opportunity we have to see that happen. Why do I want you to be there? I want you to be there because I want you to be encouraged and strengthened, but I also want you to see that happen because God's going to move and God's going to call people to himself. And I want to, before we continue, pray for tonight. Let's bow together and pray for God to work tonight. Lord, we praise and honor you this morning. That's why we're here. We're here to magnify your name and exalt you as the Lord and God and Savior that you are. Lord, we pray for tonight. May you move in powerful, amazing ways in people's lives. Lord, for those of us who love you that are coming, we pray you would just stir us and strengthen us and move in our hearts to encourage us to love you more. And Lord, for those who are, who are away from you or don't know you tonight, as they come, Lord, convict their hearts. Show them your love and grace, which is so amazing and life-changing forever. Lord, save people tonight, we pray. Use the ministry of these churches, Father. Bless Pastor Toledo. Bless the choir as they come up. Lord, use them in a powerful way so that you would be praised and you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now look back at the passage for a minute because we see this godly convergence takes place at the most visible place in town. I don't know what the most visible place would be in Racine, but the temple was the, was the center of Jerusalem. It was where everything happened. It was where uh, things were most prominent. And remember, the spiritual climate of this time, we, we keep talking about this, but I really want you to get it because it's vital to the context. The leaders are angry and they're hostile. We're going to see that in chapter 4. And the people are, are both convicted and confused. They're not quite sure what's taking place. And the church is growing day by day. So all these things, those things converge too. And there's a very palpable tension in the air. And if someone is going to name the name of Jesus Christ, it's going to get even more palpable. So we've got this, this series of events. We've got these groups of people. We've got the tension in the air. And you just know that something's going to brew. But the people are there to witness something. The crowd needs to see this miracle. And the apostles need to show the power of Christ and declare his name. And the man is there to experience the mercy of God. Think about his situation. He really has no hope in life. He's completely dependent on other people. He can't secure work because of his condition. He, he has the difficulty of paralysis, the social isolation of, of being different. He has to live with the embarrassment and the shame every day of of begging to get by. He hopes somebody will help him in, in some way before he's carried back home for another night. And he has to wonder day after day, how are my friends feeling about this? Are they bugged about it? Are they annoyed that today they got to carry me back to the temple? What happens on the days when they don't show up? Oh, we're busy. I'm sorry, we can't get by. We can't carry you there. And he sits home alone. He has to feel the, the isolation and the loneliness of his condition at this point. There's a physical and emotional pain that he's wrestling with. 
Get that picture in your mind this morning. We've all seen homeless people on the street or someone who is really helpless and, and, and doesn't have hope. Think about how he felt. Think about how he looked. As the crowds stream in and he kind of looks around, who might give me money today? Who might help me? And as he starts to call out for help, there's a, there's a sad and weary resignation in his voice, almost a mechanical routine of, of, of asking for help but not really expecting it. Day after day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade, he has to have lost some sense of anticipation that something will ever happen that's significant in his life. And he watches people walk by, and the best he can hope for is that somebody will be generous today. Somebody will, will, will see uh, beyond the pity that most people hear. Here's a little bit of help for you and just keep walking. Not really looking at him. Who's the person today that will bless me? Who's the person today that, that will give a little extra? He had to know the people. They knew him. They recognized him. It says in verse 10. But he lost that gleam in his eye. The gleam of expectation. Peter and John come along and he kind of sees them. Maybe he doesn't recognize them as the, the Jews who come by ritual every day because they've been off with Jesus for three years. Hey, those guys are new. What? Oh, maybe, maybe I can catch their eye. Maybe they'll help me. What a powerful presence they had to have at that point. And they come along and he doesn't expect them really to engage with him. But they stand out. And he sees them enough to ask for their help. But we have to learn from the text that he must have looked down or away. He must have said, oh, I hope they'll help me. And then kind of with the shame that's in his heart that he's a beggar and, and they're two guys and, and uh, he just kind of looks away. We know that because Peter says, look up. I love the words in the text. Look back at it in verse 4. Peter says, look at us. And it says the man starts to give them attention primarily because he's hoping that they're going to help him with some coins. But it had to strike him as a little bit odd that Peter's so forthright. I mean, most people just kind of walked by and dropped the coins in, maybe made a casual glance, maybe, how you doing today, kept walking, or, or just dropped it in and didn't even look, not wanting to engage emotionally with the person. But, but Peter comes right up and says, look up, look at us. And he looks up at Peter and John, and it says, oh, there's a beautiful phrase. Look at it in verse 4. It says, Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him. I love how evocative the writing is there. You can picture Peter and John standing before this beggar, and Peter looking down at him right in his eyes with the intensity that only Peter had. But he wasn't looking at him with pity or with condemnation, or, or with disgust. There's a very distinct purpose to his gaze. Listen now. Peter knew that the Lord needed to work and that the Lord was about to work. It's a very important spiritual principle here that can really change how we go about every day and how we interact with people. I remember when I was at Wheaton College, my last year, I lived about uh, three-quarters of a mile away from campus in an apartment, and every day I'd walk up to campus in the 90 degrees below zero weather, um, hoping that I would survive the trip to campus 
because I didn't have a car at the time. And we would walk, and there was a, a two-lane road, and there were sidewalks on both sides, and you would walk to campus all on that sidewalk. It wasn't any really wider than this pulpit. And as you'd walk along, invariably, you would run into people. Now, you would, you would kind of, I don't know if anybody's ever done this, you'd kind of walk along, you'd see somebody come, and you're like, oh, I don't really want to talk to them. So you kind of walk with your head down, kind of preoccupy yourself, look around. Oh, there's a soccer game tomorrow, and I walk around. And at the last minute, you ever done this? You kind of look up and give the old, how's it going? Anybody ever done that? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. You did that this morning, didn't you? How's it going? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember your name. How's it going? Good to see you. Yeah, I'll see you at church. Okay, hope I don't run into you again because I can't remember your name. So you give the old, how, how's it going? Unless you saw a good friend. Or unless you saw, in my case, a girl you were trying to get to go on a date with you and she wouldn't go out with you. But for the most part, it was not a fixed gaze. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? If you're walking to somebody and they're about 30 feet away and you just stare at them, they're going to think you're creepy. You don't gaze at somebody, mm, here comes somebody, I'm going to talk to you. People are like, I, I'm going to cross the street now. I'm going to go over here. How many times in a week do we give that polite but disengaged look? Because we don't really want to get into an actual conversation. And in a sense, that's a statement that we don't really want to get to know people. It's easier to be emotionally detached and, and, and to, to have relationships through social media rather than the opportunity to really look into people's eyes and see what's going on. One of the things I've learned in a quarter century of ministry, and even before that in high school and in college, is that you can tell a lot about a person and what's happening in their lives by looking in their eyes. I see it with people I counsel. I see it with people as I preach. I see it with kids and children that I interact with. I see it with people that don't like me, and I see it with people that are my friends. Somebody once said the eyes are the window into the soul, and I absolutely agree with that. If we would take the opportunity more often to really engage and really look in people's eyes and kind of read, I'm not being mystical here, I'm just saying really investing and looking to them and saying, how are you doing, seriously? What's going on? Because I sense, and I'm not trying to be intrusive, but I sense that something's going on. You seem sad, or you seem angry, or you seem frustrated or, or maybe you just need some prayer, or, or you look really happy today, encourage me because I'm a little down. Whatever it is, really getting into people's lives, if we would do that more often, I'm telling you it would give us more opportunities to minister to people and love people and share how we can trust in Christ and how that encourages us. But first we have to look. And when we look at people, when we do what Peter does in verse 4, when we fix our gaze on them, there is nothing that is going to show more clearly in their eyes than separation from the Lord and sadness. And those two things usually go hand in hand. I looked at somebody's eyes yesterday who doesn't particularly like me at this time, and I just saw sadness. And I didn't really know how to minister to them because they don't want to talk to me. But in their eyes, I just saw sadness. Imagine what Peter and John saw in this man's eyes. Now, come on now, picture it. Don't just listen to me, picture it. 
Imagine you're Peter and you're looking down at this beggar. And you see the desperation and the decades of helplessness and sadness and rejection and segregation and fear and worthlessness. As believers, if we allow ourselves to submit to that, it will control us rather than submitting ourselves to the Lord in prayer and trusting the Lord to get us through any circumstance, no matter what is going on. Because if those things control us, if sadness and worry and fear and isolation and worthlessness and a poor self-image and loneliness, if those things control us, then they serve as a barrier to our faith. How many know how easy it is to fall back into self-pity? How easy it is to fall back into despair instead of putting our confidence in the author and finisher of our faith. So quickly we lose that feeling of contentment and our peace gets interrupted and we start to think of reasons not to trust the Lord and the Spirit says, give thanks unto the Lord and bless His name. Call upon His name and He will answer you. Draw nigh to the Lord and He'll draw nigh to you. But we say, I can't. I can't because I'm hurting right now and, and, and God isn't responding the way he should. This man was despondent. He was discouraged. His situation is so acute that as these two men come along to help him, he doesn't recognize the power of the Holy Spirit that is so obvious that in chapter 4, verse 19, even the Pharisees see it. There's no expectation. He's completely isolated and insulated into himself. He doesn't have an anticipation that God is about to do an imminent work. And that's something that we are going to feel if we don't guard against it. I want to tell you again, I'm going to bug you again. God is going to work tonight. He is going to work in ways and you do not want to miss it. Because if you do miss it, you're going to hear after the fact, God worked. You should have been there. And you're going to say, I should have. Stay at home and watch the Packers game. Ugh. Or I went to a dinner and I shouldn't have and the food was lousy and I got stomach point. I should have been there. I, I'm not trying to fill the room, guys. I'm just saying God's going to work tonight. Look at this man. His expectations are misguided. So Peter redirects him. He's not thinking with eyes of faith because faith sees what can be. But listen, faith Thinking that way, faith, uh, just, just Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith sees what can be. It sees the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Even thinking that way is uncomfortable for us sometimes because of what we experience when we do trust on that level. If I say to you this morning and say to myself, this week we have to walk by faith that God is going to work and we have to be expected that God's going to work and, and we have to understand and see in the spiritual realm things that God is going to do that aren't visible yet. The first thing we're going to feel when we say that is, well, that's a little weird. That, that's a little odd. Especially when people look at us like we're some kind of an alien. Guess what? You are an alien. You and I are aliens in this world. We're not normal. We're not like the other people. I'm not saying that proudly. I'm saying that scripturally. We are aliens in this world. So when you talk about the moving of the Holy Spirit and walking by faith and the leading of the Lord, guess what? People are going to look at you like you're nuts. 
Faith is misunderstood and it's discredited, but that's no reason to stop calling on the Lord and submitting to His Spirit. So the first thing we feel is weird. Second thing we feel is that people are going to criticize us because they don't understand us. When you talk about trusting in God and going to a prayer meeting and praying to Him and calling on His name and and trusting Him through difficulty, listen, everybody doesn't see the invisible. They don't see the spiritual warfare. They don't know what the Holy Spirit looks like. They don't know what prayer really means. That doesn't mean just because other people don't understand it that we shouldn't keep walking by faith. And then as we feel weird, and we get criticized, boy, it sounds good, doesn't it? Then then the third thing happens. As we feel weird and people criticize, then the tendency is to start to doubt. See, doubt comes out of the first two affecting us. And it goes something like this. Well, what if I trust and the Lord doesn't work? Well, Paul, come on, I prayed, but I just, I don't see God, I don't see God moving and, I'm trying. I'm not being critical this morning. I'm walking through this every day. I'm walking through this about tonight. I don't know if there are going to be 12 people there. Or there could be 1,000 and we have a real problem. I'd rather take the 1,000 and a real problem. We'll just meet till midnight. We walk by faith every day, but doubt says, well, what if it doesn't work? Listen, when you hear that in your head, just quote 1 Corinthians 2.9. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That mitigates against the pressure that we feel to be discouraged when God doesn't immediately work and our faith gets weakened. Now, to spur this man's faith, look back at the text. Peter wants him to understand exactly what's going on and who's responsible for the dramatic life transformation that's about to take place. So he fixes his eyes on the man and he says, look at us. Now the man doesn't have to say anything else. Hope is written all over his face now. Hey, these two strangers engaged with me. All right, maybe this is the guy today. Maybe I hit it early on, the people that are really going to help me. And they're actually talking to me. And you can kind of sense it. But Peter directs his hope away from anything material and anything that, that, that would be uh, uh, focused away from God. And he says, I've got something more substantial. I've got something that will change your life. Because you have a spiritual need. It doesn't seem that's what Peter's saying, but it's the underlying subtext for what's happening. Peter looks at him and he sees a spiritual need and he says, let me direct you away from the physical and even away from the material. And he says, let's talk about the goodness and mercy of God. We're only going halfway if we show people love in our actions, but we don't tell them about the grace of God. There's a movement within Christianity that we just minister. All we have to do in ministry is just serve people, love people. That's a wonderful concept. But if you don't tell people, it means nothing. Salvation Army serves people. Other organizations serve people. They love people. Non-believers can love people and serve people. They do it every day. United Way, whatever organization, they serve people. But unless you tell people, well, here's the reason I'm serving. It's because Jesus Christ has changed my life. Then you only go halfway. 
So Peter gets his undivided attention and he gets the man to focus away from himself. Look at us. Listen, I don't have any silver or gold. And you can see the man's countenance just drop just for a brief second. I don't have any silver or gold for you. But what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look at me. I don't have money for you. I have something that is far more substantial. You need to know about Jesus Christ. And it is only, look at the text now, this is important. It is only when he names the name of Christ that he then says, walk. That order is important because it's a picture of what's required to trust. Peter is saying, hey, mister, I'm not dealing with physical currency this morning. I'm dealing with spiritual currency. And while I don't have any money for you, I do have something that is sure in my heart and I can give it to you because it's been given to me and now I'm responsible to pass the truth along to you and I want to tell you this morning, quit worrying about money You need to know Jesus Christ. How many know that it always comes back to Christ? When we are serving the Lord and doing the work of ministry, our message and our actions always must point people to Christ. And we need to anticipate what must be, uh, who might, uh, might be brought to faith in Christ because of what the Lord is doing through us. Doesn't have to be a miracle. I don't know about you, but I didn't raise anybody uh, from paralysis this week. It, it may not be that spectacular. In fact, almost always it won't be. But if we can point people to the name of Jesus Christ, then that will be effective. God always draws people back to himself. We may wish that he always heals and, and that he would restore everybody and that we could just walk through the ER and name the name of Jesus Christ and everybody just hop out of their beds and run out of the hospital. It doesn't work that way because sometimes God allows it so that that might be used to get people to know Christ. Why was this man paralyzed for 40 years? He was paralyzed for 40 years so Peter and James could, John could come along and name the name of Jesus Christ and he could get up and walk. And it wasn't just about the three of them. It says in the text that the crowds were watching. It says that they took note of it. Some of you are taking notes this morning. They actually in their minds went, oh. Hey, wait a second. Isn't that the guy that used to sit by the gate? He's been there every day for decades. I keep, I, when I was a kid, I saw him walking in every day. He's gotten a little older, but what's he doing now? He's walking around. What in the world's going on? That's what the text means. They took note of it. They went home at night and told their families. They went back and told their friends, you wouldn't believe what happened at the temple today. You remember that guy who used to sit out the gate beautiful every day? Guess what? He's leaping around. What are you talking about? He's leaping around. What do you mean? I'm telling you, he's leaping around. I took note of it right here on my papyrus. Look. I wrote it down. This was a validation of the name of Christ. Remember the tension in the air? Now Peter and John are standing in the courts of the temple, the busiest place in town where the Pharisees would stand and just kind of 
watch over the people smugly and arrogantly, knowing in their hearts that they were full of sin. Jesus called them snakes and whited sepulchers. And they stood there with their smug looks. And all of a sudden, this beggar who was there every day is hearing the name of Jesus Christ right in the temple court. And he gets up and jumps around. And they couldn't do anything about it. You see, Peter, look at it. He says to the man, walk. Not stand. Walk. There's an active verb here. Walk. He reaches at this point, this man, the defining point of his 40 years. This right here in Acts 3 is the defining point of his life. He had never known walking before, so that concept, while it's good and attractive, wasn't even in the recesses of his subconsciousness. He had never done it before. There was no muscle memory to fall back on. There was no experience to draw from. He hadn't been paralyzed at 25 and living with it for 15 years. He had been born this way. Luke, the doctor, tells us from the womb he was paralyzed. He had no idea what walking would be like, but he had a decision to make at this exact moment. Would he trust in the name of Christ? Would he trust? Stop a minute. I know this is long, but picture this again. You've got to get this. Reading the text, there's no visible break between verse 6 and verse 7. But I want you to imagine in your mind just the slightest moment of freeze frame, like when you're watching TV and they get to the big scene and it pauses and then you go to the commercial for Cheetos. I mean, you're like, ah! I, w- I, want, you to, I want you to pause between verse 6 and verse 7. Peter says to him, look at us. I don't have any silver or gold. I have the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. Pause. And then Peter reaches down his right hand. And as that happened, the man reaches a moment of choice. And he could pull away. For any number of reasons, he could say, you've offended me. Get away from me. Who are you? What are you, mocking me? He could be angry that they're not giving him money. He could be annoyed that Peter's toying with them. He could be irritated that they're drawing attention and making an example of him. He might even be outraged by the name of Christ. We don't know what's going on in his head, but I'm telling you, when Peter looks in his eyes, he sees something. And prompted by the Holy Spirit, he reaches out his hand. Now the lame man at that point, right there, verse 7, has to decide right then whether he is going to let Peter pull him up. Because if this is not a true healing, he's going to get very hurt. This was a lifelong condition for decades. It was so severe that people had to carry him every day. At this point, his legs have no feeling, his bones are brittle, and his muscles have completely atrophied. So if he tries to stand without being healed, something's going to break and something's going to tear, and he's going to fall flat on his face and look like a complete fool for having trusted in them. So there's an implied peer pressure in the air. And those who had crucified Christ months before, 
the Pharisees and the scribes who are smugly looking on. It's all there in that moment. The crowd is immense. And this is a very visceral moment of decision. Is he going to trust in the name of Jesus Christ? Look how he responds. We're almost done. Verses 7 and 8. Peter raises him up to standing. And as he does, the man's feet and ankles are immediately strengthened. But what happens next is what should really catch your attention. Because how many times do we get to that first substantiation of our faith and then we fall back in doubt and hesitation? This man had every reason to be hesitant and cautious and careful. But I want you to see in the text, look at it in verse 8, that as soon as he realizes that his strength has been restored and that his weakness has been defeated, notice the next word in verse 8. It says, with a leap, he leaps forward and begins to walk. Now, don't miss the spiritual implication of that in your life and my life. How long does it take us to fully engage the Lord when He is moving? Or do we reserve some of our confidence? All right, well, I see God moving. (laughs) Well, okay, but, you know, still need to see a little more evidence. And, And Lord, give me a couple signs and affirm this and send somebody along that will affirm it to me verbally and um, show me this, and, and give me that, and, 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 and just kind of prove yourself. Come on, Lord, just, just so I can really trust. Rather than, and I'm not going to do it, because I'll fall, leaping forward in faith. When God starts to move, listen now, you've listened so well. When God starts to move, Rather than holding back, do we leap forward in trust because we know who He is and how He works and what He's promised and what He's done before? You see, we can have faith as believers, but it can move like a turtle stuck in peanut butter. I know people that have been saved 15 years, 30 years, 40 years, and they believe in God, but but their faith is is glacier-like. Little tiny steps. And you go, you've known the Lord for three decades. Why can't you trust? Oh, no. No. Come on. Come on. There are people that have been saved three months that are moving faster than you. Well, you know, got to be careful. Can't, Can't get too far out of the box. I don't know what this box is that everybody keeps talking about, but I'm tired of it. There's no box for a Christian. You know what there is? There's the Holy Spirit. There's God moving. There's us leaping forward. How powerful is it that this man leaps into his trust literally with both feet? That's the kind of confidence that you and I are called to have. Faith that centers on Christ jumps at the opportunity to serve Him. It leaps forward and says, of course, Lord, I don't understand it and it's inexplicable and I don't see the end of the tunnel and I don't know what's going on. But God, if you said move forward, I'm moving forward. And I'll trust you and I'll depend on you and that's just what I have to do. 
Now notice in conclusion his behavior in the wake of his healing. There are five distinct actions. I'm just going to name them to you. That show not only the reality of his healing, but the new consciousness of the power and sufficiency of the Lord. It says that he leapt up, he began to walk, he entered the temple with Peter and John, and then he walked and leapt and praised God. Now that would seem like an obvious response, but it's not what we always do, is it? How quickly do we forget to praise the one who's just answered our prayers or who we've seen work in a mighty way? That's why it helps to praise him publicly because then you're on account for it. Oh, God worked in such a powerful way this week. Listen, we've been under warfare for two weeks. We keep seeing God move. We keep seeing God heal. We keep seeing God solve. And we have to continue to praise him for that. Otherwise, we're just going to fall back into discouragement. When you sing tonight in that service, sing with joy and with confidence because you're going to see people up there whose lives have been dramatically changed and they're going to talk about how God has moved in their lives and I want you to be strengthened by that. That's what happens here. Look at it in verses 9 and 10. All the people saw him walking and leaping and praising God. There's the verification of the miracle by the crowd and their spiritual interest is peaked. They're amazed at what happened to him. But before he gets caught up in his new freedom, look at what he does first. Verse 8, we'll pray. It says that as soon as he could walk, middle of verse 8, he entered the temple. Not only were his feet and legs restored, but his faith was restored. He hadn't usually gone into the temple he always sat at the outer edge, close to God, but not in his presence. Listen, there is no such thing as a proximity Christian. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a proximity Christian. A proximity Christian is somebody that gets near to the presence of God, but keeps the distance. All right, I'll walk by faith for a little bit. Oh, okay, Lord's driving me. Oh, okay, that was good. I'm, boy, that was enough. Jesus said, unless you are willing to deny everything else and take up your cross and follow me and forsake everything and love no one more than you love me. This is hard words. You are not fit to be my disciple. That is a high standard that doesn't allow us to stay at the edge. This man's first act was to go in and praise the Lord. Can you imagine what his prayer sounded like? It was not, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the blessings and thank you for this food. Can you imagine him praying like that? Oh, Lord, oh. What have you done? Oh, you've been so merciful to me. How could this have happened? Remember, he's leaping. He's praising God. He's jumping around. All the people are kind of coming into the prayer time very solemnly, walking like monks. And he's, yeah, woo, yeah. Ah, ah. Imagine it. I know I'm making a fool of myself, but I want you to get it. You got it, right? You see it? In your mind, you see it? Yes! Oh! Oh! Can you believe what the Lord's done? Did you see? Oh! 
That's the text. Uh, don't just read it as words. Remember, I told you that at the start. Don't just read words. He is dancing and jumping and leaping because he has freedom. But listen now. What are all the other options he could have done with his first action? i got to go tell my family. i got to go see my friends. I'm going to go on vacation. I can move around. I'm going to go to a restaurant. Can you imagine all the things he could have done? What's he do? He goes in and says, Lord, I'm going to worship you. i got to get in the presence of the Lord. I get it now. i got to get in the presence of the Lord. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. They probably had to drag him out. Praise you, God. Praise you. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, you've done it. Is that what's in our hearts this morning? What leap of faith are you taking to the Lord this morning? What leap of faith is God calling you to this week? God wants to move in our lives. He is moving in our lives. Are, are we being cautious and tentative? Or are we saying, yes, Lord, just do it. Just go forward. I will follow you. I don't understand everything. I don't have to. You're God. I'm not. I don't have to understand it all. You just move. I'll follow. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you this morning to speak to our hearts again and again. Lord, when we think about Christ and the work that He has done, salvation and deliverance and redemption, eternal security, Your Spirit, Your leading, Your faithfulness, Your patience, Your forgiveness, Your goodness. Lord, our heart leaps in praise to You. But as You call us to live by faith, Lord, I pray for myself this morning and I pray for each member of this congregation that we would leap forward with you. Not carelessly, not to glorify ourselves, but as you lead, that we would follow. Lord, you are going to do a mighty work in our lives. You have plans for us that we can't fathom and you're waiting to do them looking for those who would trust in you. So, Lord, give me faith this morning. Give each person in this room faith this morning to trust you confidently. You've never failed us. You've never forsaken us. And you never will. We praise you and honor you, Father, for being so gracious. Where I say amen, I just want to encourage you, challenge you. I don't know what the Lord's saying to your heart this morning. But whatever you're holding back, I ask you to just yield to him. I know it's scary. I know it's intimidating. I know you're being criticized. It doesn't matter. He's sufficient. He's faithful. Give it over to him. Let him do the work of guiding you. Lord, help us to trust. We love you in Jesus' name.